Please turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. We're going to continue in our journey working together as a church through the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke, chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 23 to 38. And I'd really like you to have this open in front of you for uh, some obvious reasons in just a moment. So on your devices or, or on your personal Bibles, you may even want to use the church Bible right in the chairs in front of you. If you're using that Bible, Luke 3.23 begins on page 806. Luke 3.23 to 38. And I want to begin by acknowledging, at least on the surface, that the passage that we're considering today is not exactly appear to be the most engaging or scintillating part of Luke's gospel. Let's check it out together. Go ahead and, and take a moment with me, just heads down, it, well, in your Bibles, uh, scan this section of scripture with me. I'll give you a minute to do that. Skim through it, make some mental observations, Luke 3, 23 to 38. Okay, getting a sense? Now, on a scale of boring to blow your mind awesome, where would you initially rank this passage? Don't answer. You see, if we're honest, many of us would confess that we read this passage of Scripture and those like it, these genealogies and many lists that we find in God's Word with a bit of a half-hearted yawn. In fact, some of you who are beginning to piece together what's about to happen are beginning to have a sinking feeling in your chest. Tell me he's not going to preach an entire sermon on this. Because what we see here in Luke 3, 23 to 38, kind of seems like the Jewish equivalent of reading through the phone book. <laughs> now, uh, teachable moment. If you were born after the year 2000, you probably have no idea what a phone book is. So I've brought one, Exhibit A. Actually, uh, Benjamin brought this in from his house and we were joking together. This is about the skinniest phone book I've ever seen in my life. Um, a phone book, for those of you who are like, you know, younger millennials or Gen Zers, a phone book is a book of phone numbers that before our phone numbers were stored on cell phones, you needed to know how to get a hold of somebody. And so you'd look them up alphabetically in this big mamma jamma that would have everybody's name uh, and the name of businesses uh, in them. Here's my point. We must resist the urge to read Luke's genealogy here in chapter 3 like a laundry list of hard-to-pronounce Jewish names. We've got to resist the urge to think of Luke's genealogy like the phone book. Because the truth is, Luke intends for this very genealogy to stand out, to resound like a thunderclap, which is why he places it right here at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry in his gospel. So yes, we are going to read through this and give our time to it this morning, and my hope is that we can stick to the plan, and we'll, we will be drilling down on four things uh, from this genealogy here in Luke 3. We've got an outline, I think, for you. Four things to tease out. First, after uh, reading 
through this passage, and, and maybe you just want to pray for, say, say a separate prayer for me as I prepare to read through this list of names. Uh, it's, it sort of feels like running, through, running a marathon. Anyway, um, here's what we'll do on the back end of reading. We're first going to take some time just to highlight some of the key figures that we see in the genealogy. Then I think it's important that we address a major objection that's often levied against not just this genealogy, but God's word as a result of this being here. Thirdly, we're going to take some time to consider the importance of placement. It is very important, I think you'll see, why Luke gives us a genealogy right here. And then lastly, we will uh, button things up with some practical application. What do genealogies, and this genealogy in particular, mean for us? How, how do we work these truths out in our everyday lives? But let's, uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, just begin by reading through God's word to us. Luke 3, beginning in verse 23. Let me remind you that this too is the word of the Lord. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonah. Joannan, excuse me, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Eldmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of uh, Levi, excuse me, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whew. Well, there is Luke's genealogy of Jesus the Christ. And I want us to look back at the very beginning of this passage. Luke begins his genealogy by drawing our attention to two things in verse 23. First, Luke tells us Jesus' age, which is interesting if you'd like to scratch this itch. Jesus is about 30 years of age, Scripture tells us, when he begins his public ministry, which is a very common 
age for one to formally step into or begin service in ministry. We can think of examples like Joseph or David or Ezekiel or anyone entering the Levitical priesthood for that matter. 30 was a very special age to to step in to begin serving the Lord. But then, after giving us Jesus' age, Luke also gives us a note, which I think is a special one here. He, he gives us a reaffirmation of Jesus' virgin birth. Look at verse 23 there. He, Jesus, is the Son as was supposed. Some of your translations might read there, so it was thought of Joseph. What's Luke doing here? Well, he's prompting us to remember what he's literally just finished telling us up to this point in his gospel about the miraculous conception of Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, the son as was supposed. This was no Joe Jr. This Jesus was distinct, holy, different. Jesus being born of the Holy Spirit and not of Joseph himself, is a reminder to us that this man is not stained by original sin. He's born of a woman, yes, truly human, and yet also born of God. We've seen already up to this point, Luke tell us in his Gospel that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Luke one thirty two. Jesus, uh, Jesus is also, we see in this very same gospel, the Son of God, Luke one thirty five, And literally last week, we just finished reading, if you look back a, a verse or two, God Himself echo audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son, Luke 3.22. So, we know at least this much, if we're tracking through the book of Luke together, that Jesus is divine. He is the very Son of Almighty God. And now, after finishing his exclamation point on that truth, Luke continues without skipping a breath, without skipping a beat as it were, to tell us not only is Jesus Son of God, He is also Son of Man. He is truly human and truly divine. Now what better way to show this than to trace Jesus' ancestry All the way back. I mean, really far all the way back. All the way back to Adam. And Luke does that. He takes us all the way back to the very beginning. Now, we know little or sometimes even nothing about most of the names here on the list that we find of Jesus' genealogy in Luke. But there there are some names here. There are others of great significance that we just can't afford to miss. So let's take a look at this list again, and we're going to highlight three critical names, three connections that Luke makes to Jesus through this genealogy. The first that I'd like us to highlight together is in verse 31. We see that Jesus, Luke calls Jesus the son of David. He's in David's line which is code, if you're Jewish, for the Messianic King. That's why 
In our responsive reading just a moment ago, we read together Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, that great messianic prophecy that the Lord would raise up through David's line a righteous branch. And that this branch, this righteous branch from David's line would reign as king. That's the promise. We see this many places throughout Scripture, but uh, one most notably in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I think we've got that up on the screen for you. God spoke this prophetic promise to David the king in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. When, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring, uh, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. God's promise to David is I'm going to bring one from your line, David, and his throne, his rule will be eternal. Now, I don't know who you have in mind, but that's not Solomon, right? Solomon was the promised son, and, and we can read all about it in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. However, we know that Solomon, in his reign, in his pride, in his disobedience, fractured the kingdom of Israel. And you fast forward a few generations, and David's line seems to fizzle out and, and dissolve in, into exile. Yet, God's promise has a near purpose, often, and a far purpose. Yes, Solomon was David's son, but, but there's one coming later who would sit on an eternal throne. This messianic ruler, this son of David, is who the Jews were waiting for. And Luke is saying here in his genealogy, here he is. This is the rightful king. This is the one come from David's line. The righteous branch whose rule will never end. Jesus is king. He has a rightful claim to the throne as David's seed. That's one of the things Luke illustrates. Pretty big deal, right? But, but he didn't stop there. We also see in verse 34, another, another high watermark in Luke's genealogy, if you will. Verse 34, we read that Jesus is also the son of Abraham. The, the promised offspring who God told Abraham would be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. Now, I hope you remember those promises. We're talking about this promise to Abraham constantly around here. God's covenant promise. We see it many places, uh, but, but most notably in Genesis twenty two eighteen, And I've got it here on the screen for you. God says to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I love it when Scripture just bottom lines itself. When Scripture interprets Scripture, and it's like super clear. And the New Testament does this for Genesis 22 in the book of Galatians. In the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16. Again, I've got this here for you, so you're not uh, flipping all over the place. Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes a fascinating point about that promised 
offspring of Abraham. Paul writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, listen, God didn't say offsprings, like plural. The blessing from Abraham is going to come, Galatians 3 clarifies, from a singular offspring. Let's look at that verse. Galatians 3, 16 together. Now, the promises, Paul writes, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Isn't that good? Luke is making another point, and it's loud and clear. Not only is Jesus the Davidic king, not only is he the Messiah that we've been waiting to come from David's line, he is also the promised offspring of Abraham who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Has Jesus done that? Has Jesus become a blessing to all languages and tribes and nations and peoples? Yeah. The gospel is for all. Now, as if that wasn't already a lot to wrap your, your head around, Jesus as the King, Jesus as the, the blessing to herald uh, salvation to all nations, Luke's, Luke's not done. He's going to keep on going all the way back to the beginning. Here's, here's the last name we'll highlight directly on our list here. Look down at the end in verse 38. Luke traces Jesus' line, his descent, all the way back to Adam. Verse 38, he is indeed the son of Adam. In other words, he is truly man. Jesus is the one promised to Adam, if you'll remember, in Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion. Jesus is the promised son to descend from Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the snake. Remember that promise? Jesus is the embodiment of Genesis 3.15. He's the snake crusher. He's the blessing giver to all nations. He is the king. All from a little bitty genealogy. Just highlighting a few names here. Now, we would be remiss not to acknowledge at this point that this genealogy isn't, isn't only beautiful and, and amazing in terms of the truths it speaks about Christ, but it's also a genealogy which has conjured up quite a bit of controversy over the years. Believe it or not, this genealogy is the source of a lot of ink that's been spilled, particularly those who would come against the Christian faith and the, the truthfulness, the veracity of Scripture saying, I don't know about your Bible. Seems like it's not really trustworthy. What do I mean? Well, here's the issue. There are two genealogies for Jesus listed in the New Testament. One of them is right out of the chute. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the first thing that Matthew does after a little introduction is give a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. You can flip over if you're interested in checking it. Keep your, keep your thumb in, uh, in Luke 3. The other genealogy, also of Jesus, is right here. Luke 3, beginning in verse 23. Here's the, the issue, or the problem, if you'd like to call it that. 
Jesus' genealogy in Matthew and Luke are very, very different. Now you might say, well, so what? We, we've all got two lines, right? You've got a, a line that goes back through our mother and a line go, that goes back through our biological father. Yeah, but it's not quite that straightforward. You see, both of these genealogies in Matthew and in Luke carry Joseph's name with them. So what are we going to do about that? Same guy, ostensibly the same line, but two very different names, like to the tune of 40 different names in one than the other. It's not just a blip here or there. Matthew or Luke missed a nickname. No, these are, these are different lists. So we, we should acknowledge that there's, there's quite a bit of difference. For one, I mean, I'll acknowledge this as well, they, the genealogies don't even follow the same pattern or format. Matthew starts with Abraham, and he traces the genealogy from Abraham forward to get to Jesus. Luke flips it around. Luke starts with Jesus and then begins to trace the genealogy backwards. He blows right by David, Abraham, and goes way back to the very beginning. Very different formats, but the format isn't really the problem. It's, it's those differences in names. Even in the portions of their genealogies where Matthew and Luke seem to be talking about the same generations. What do we do with that? What, what do we make of this ostensible controversy or, or uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contradiction. There we go. Well, I think one thing that's very important for us not to do in the to borrow the words of the learned Dale Ralph Davids, is this, we ought not at this point in Luke's Gospel to do something stupid. I love, love me some Dale Ralph Davis. Why does Davis say, at this point in time as you're reading through Luke's Gospel, don't do something dumb? Well, because some people do. They get here to the genealogy and they say, wait a minute, I read this in Matthew and something's not jiving. As a matter of fact, as I alluded to a moment ago, some enemies of the, fu- of the faith would even go so far as to say, aha, see? Your Bible, which you put so much stake in, your Bible, which you, you hang all truth on, it's your source for everything, not even consistent with itself. These genealogies can't even jive. Maybe Scripture isn't so trustworthy after all. The, the stakes are high as we begin to look at this genealogy and, and try to make sense of what the Lord is doing here. We do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and, and useful for teaching, for peru- reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness. This, tr- this word is true. So what's going on here? Well, um, the first thing I think that we should say about this is that as we are working through these differences, we ought to do so with a sense of humility. And we ought not immediately to assume that the problem is with the Bible and not with us. Let me explain what I mean by that. Perhaps it's not that the Bible is wrong or giving misleading or disparate information. Perhaps it's just that we don't have enough information or context, or awareness of what's going on here between these two lists. I mean, for crying out loud, 
not that many generations ago, they were sticking leeches on world leaders to suck their blood out, thinking that would cure them. You know, that's how the first president of the United States died? Well, there's other stuff going on. But they bloodlet him. He lost like 40% of his blood when he got sick. That was the best medicine available, right? The greatest scientific medical minds on getting George Washington well. Let's take out his blood. Leeches. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say maybe we're not as smart as we think we are all the time. I've got a gaggle of kids with my wife, Lindsay. They're at home today fighting some sort of little sickness, nothing too serious. But um, uh, we laugh just because in the 12 years that we've had children, the rules constantly change over what's safe for babies and kids, right? We've got these little sleep sacks that we'll put our our kiddos down in when we're putting them to bed. And and some of them say, just stamped on the sleep sack, back is best. It's important, right? You want to put the baby down on their back. Well, that wasn't always a thing, was it? Raise your hand if, if you were told when you were raising your kid that it was important to put them down, face down. Yeah. These rules change. What am I trying to say? Not like throw logic to the wind, but maybe when we run up against an ostensible problem or contradiction with Scripture, the problem isn't always Scripture. It's our understanding of the culture and the context. And we just don't always have enough information. So, what do we do about this? Well, um, oh boy, at the expense of, uh, at the risk of, I, I guess just keeping you guys awake. That's what I want to do. I, 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 th- I think if I were really to do a deep dive on uh, comparing and contrasting the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, after about five minutes, I'd begin to see your eyes glaze over. And then about 15 minutes, when I like finished the discourse, the, the seven of you that were left with me um, would still need to take the Scriptures and the arguments provided and prayerfully ask the Lord to help you make some decisions. So, so what we're not going to do is like break out our highlighters and go through the genealogy name by name. I think what's more important to you is for us just to acknowledge that there are some very feasible explanations as to why these two genealogies are different. And I'm just going to give you some fodder to think about and then prayerfully be a Berean. Come to your own conclusion on these things. Uh, so, so hopefully this will help. And, and, and I recognize this stuff is just a bit technical, maybe not quite so uh, scintillating. So uh, bear with me, if you will. And if, if this is really your thing and you're finding yourself wanting more, we can't drill down too deeply now in this forum. I'd invite you just reach out to me. I'd love to get you more resources or we could even have a conversation uh, about uh, deeper stuff with these genealogies. But let's just keep it on a high level, uh, and we'll keep clicking through the text here. So why? Here's the next slide for you. Why different genealogies in Matthew and Luke? Well, there's three predominant views, three faithful views that a lot of good, godly people hold, and I should acknowledge that sometimes these three views will overlap at points. Here's the first one. View number one. Matthew's genealogy establishes Jesus' legal claim to David's throne. That is through Solomon. If you go back in your, in your Matthew genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, you see when it gets to David, 
the line for Christ is traced through Solomon, the king. This is the the royal line that Matthew is laying out, is one viewpoint. But Luke's genealogy, on the other hand, traces Jesus' biological bloodline. There was a, a royal line that Matthew was laying out, one argument goes, and then there was the actual biological bloodline of Christ carried through Luke. And you'll see here in, what verse are we in? Verse 31 of Luke chapter 3 that David's son Nathan is the one through whom this genealogy is traced. So that's, that's one possible explanation. You've got two different writers doing two very different things. Here's the second view, which, which actually is uh, um, borrowed by both of the other two. Uh, but in a real simple sense, so I'll just say it this way. The differences in names are simply due to adoption and leveret marriage. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that there are stipulations for what happens if a man is married to a woman and, and he's, he dies childless. What happens in that case? Well, there's laws about the, the, the closest brother or, or relative, the kinsman redeemer, who will step in at that point in time and carry on the brother's line. That child bears the brother's name, carries on the brother's line, even though biologically he's of somebody else. And if that's just a little bit too confusing, just, just think about adoption. In the first century, just like today, it's very obvious to us all that sometimes sons and daughters, children, aren't always biological, are they? I mean, we've got a little one-and-a-half-year-old girl at home right now She's our foster baby, and man, we treat her like a daughter, and she, she is a, a daughter to us. Now, not legally, and we're praying through all that and holding in our hands loosely what the Lord might do, but it's not true that all children are biological. So sometimes, think about it rationally. If you get on this very long list of names an adoption or a leveret marriage, that could completely Send the genealogy, the family tree, in two different directions from there, even though it's the same family and there's no real contradiction, if you will. Okay? So view number one, David was given the royal line, Luke was giving the biological line. View number two, yeah, well, there's adoption and there's leveret marriage, and that could easily have been enforced somewhere along the line, and that could account for the differences. View number three, and this, this is the view that I happen to hold, Real simple, Matthew's genealogy follows Joseph's line, and Luke's genealogy traces Mary's family line. So when you think about it, when Matthew is setting out, uh, the, the uh, society at the time was a patriarchal one, and, and your legal status came through your father, so although Jesus was not Born of Joseph in a biological sense, legally, he was adopted into that family and a part of that line, and so Jesus would have had a real true claim to the royal throne through his father, Joseph. But Mary's line was what was followed here in Luke chapter 3. So, in a sense, this is, this is not like a shaky ground. This is actually a strong suit to say, Gosh, Jesus has a double claim to David's throne. From both his mom and dad, they were both 
wrapped up into David's family. This is a, this is a double claim to kingship. Now, how can we make the claim that Luke's genealogy follows Mary's line? If you're looking with me here, verse 23, it says Joseph, doesn't it? Well, yeah. But note that Luke signals something out of the ordinary happening here, doesn't he? The son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now again, we can't spend too much time on this, but Luke is flying a flag letting us know, hey, he was supposed to be, he was considered Joseph's son, but he wasn't really Joseph's son. And at this point in time, many commentators have a lot to say. Again, I can get you some resources if you're interested, but Heli, who's listed here as the father of Joseph, could have been Joseph's father-in-law, adopting him into the family through perhaps leveret marriage or something like that. Actually, there's some extra biblical resources that, act, that tell us that Heli was Mary's father. So again, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I think it's very reasonable to say that there are plausible explanations for why these genealogies are so different. We ought not to just jump to the conclusion, see, the Bible's not trustworthy. No, there's a, there, there's a lot here uh, that's happening. I, I happen to believe that Joseph's line is, uh, is aired out through Matthew, and then we see Mary's line at work through, through Luke chapter 3. All right, time to move on. You can snap back to it if you were taking a little nap during that section. All right. It's important that we don't miss the glory of what's happening here in this genealogy because we're lost in the weeds and the names. What I'd like us to consider now is the placement of this genealogy in Luke's broader gospel. This is critical for us to see. Luke told us at the beginning of his gospel that he was setting out to write an orderly account. Translation. I'm not just stream of consciousness writing this thing. This is planned out. Dr. Luke, who is meticulous, the most detailed of all of the Gospel writers, has a plan. And he is intentionally giving us Jesus' genealogy. He's placing it here, I think, for emphasis. Tell me, tell me what, you, uh, what you think here. Let's look at the bookends of the genealogy. That's the next slide for you. Just, just go ahead. But before the genealogy, we read last week about Jesus' baptism. So look, like, the very verse before Luke gets into the genealogy, what's said about Jesus? You remember that climactic moment when Jesus was baptized and was praying in the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form, and then God the Father speaks to, he to him from heaven. And what's he say? You're my beloved son. I mean, on the scale of all the things that are a big deal, that is an audible voice coming from God Almighty affirming Jesus' sonship. That is a very big deal. And I would be willing to wager that it's not a coincidence that Luke literally just finished telling us about Jesus being the Son of God. The ink is still drying on the parchment. And what's the very next thing he does? After asserting in verse 22 that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Well, he proceeds to take us through a painstaking genealogy to prove to us that he's not only the Son of God, he's also the Son of Man. Look at verse 38. What we saw. He, he goes all the way back to Adam. Again, we've got to see this. Jesus is not some sort of spiritual hologram. He is truly God and truly man. Now, if we wanted to twist the knife even a little further to, to illustrate this point about Jesus' humanity and divinity being laid side by side next to one another here in Luke chapter 3, look at what happens in the very next verse after the genealogy. I think I've got another slide for you here. Luke concludes his genealogy with the first man, Adam, who remember what happened to Adam? He was tempted by the evil one and fell. So, Adam, son of God, tempted, fell. And what's the very next thing Luke does? This is wild. Tell me this is a coincidence. The very next thing Luke does is take us into chapter 4, which doesn't exist. The verse chapters and numbers were like added way later. His very next thing is to tell us that Jesus, a little sneak peek into next week, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being ding, 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 tempted by the devil. Tell me you see this. This is such a big deal. You see the bookends of the genealogy. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Adam. Verse 22 and verse 38. And then, just like Adam, the first man was tempted and fell, we see the second Adam, the true and greater Adam, also the Son of God, is tempted by the evil one and is victorious. Friends, far from putting us to sleep, Luke's placement of this genealogy is meant to shake us awake and show us the import, the beauty, the glory of who Jesus is and what He's accomplishing on our behalf. Now, I... Appreciated uh, Mike and Ruthann introducing that song to us earlier. That was on purpose. That song, Christ the True and Better. Let me just read to you that, that first verse again. Man, it's beautiful. That first verse is, is really just highlighting what we see here in Luke chapter 3, that Jesus is also the Son of God like Adam, but He's the better Adam. The second Adam, the victorious one. Got the lyrics here for you. Christ, the true and better Adam. We just sang this. Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, He reversed the curse. Then rising, crushed the serpent's head. As this is exactly what we're going to see next week. Christ, the truer Adam, the better Adam, doing what the first Adam could not do. Reversing the curse, offering salvation and eternal life to all who would trust in Him.
It's a lot from a little genealogy, eh? The only thing that remains is for us to ask the obvious question, the application question. What in the world do we do with all this? You got some bullet points in your notes, maybe, or in your mind, I hope, about why this genealogy is important. Well, it's 2023. What does Christ's true divinity and Christ's true humanity mean for us? Besides from everything (laughs) wrapped up in your salvation. Well, for one, this genealogy and all Bible genealogies, I think, can be very sobering things. Fun fact, we didn't plan it this way, did we, Bob? Bob Menkel is teaching on Wednesday, Genesis chapter 5, the genealogy, that one's real fun, by the way, Um, the genealogy that's laid out from Adam through Noah and the flood it's, uh, I encourage you to come out if you're interested. Uh, what, 6.30 this, this Wednesday, Genesis chapter 5. Anyway, these genealogies, Matthew 1, Genesis 5, this one here in Luke 3, are very sobering things because they remind us what we were talking about earlier in the service, that all men are but grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Doesn't this genealogy remind you that you're dust? I hope it does. That our lives, to borrow the words from Ecclesiastes, are like but a vapor. Most of these names, I'll remind you, we know nothing about. These aren't just empty shells of human beings, just ink on a paper. These names represent real lives made in the image of God. They had families. They had hopes and dreams. They, they worked. All kinds of stuff wrapped up in these names that we know, we know nothing about. And as I read through these names, and as we're getting ready to read through Genesis 5 on Wednesday, so-and-so lived, and he died, and he lived, and he died, and he lived, and he died. That cadence ought to jar us into a sober reality that we too will soon die. Unless Jesus should return first, there will be a day when you will draw your last breath. And that day may be sooner than you imagine. These genealogies, friends, are perspective setters for us. They remind us that our lives ought to be spent for the glory of God. There's no No higher objective, no greater aim for us to be striving for in our brief sojourn here on this side of the sun. These genealogies remind us, I think, about Moses' prayer in Psalm 90. I love Psalm 90. It's Moses' only psalm that we're aware of. Moses prays in Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days aright. 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I think if you're looking for an application point in this genealogy, that ought to be it. Lord, teach me to number my days well, to order my days well. I I don't know how many there are, but I want them to be faithful to you. I want to serve you in the time that you've given me here because there's no guarantees for tomorrow. I'm reminded of a very um, common quote attributed to C.T. Studd, a missionary to China, India, Africa. C.T. Studd was an example of a guy whose um, example matched his name. This guy was a stud. You can look him up. Listen to this, listen to this quote by the, by the missionary. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, it's possible that the Lord is calling you, like Stud, to the mission field. I don't ever for a moment want to discount that God could be doing that. And yet for many of us, it's perhaps statistically more likely that he calls us to serve him here in the context where he's planted us, working for his glory. So let's just put some color on this, some some simple examples. What's it look like for us to use our experiences and our time and our talents for the glory of God? Because just like the names in this genealogy, soon... Soon, we will be before the face of God. So I'm thinking, I was thinking this week about the example of Trisha Gottschalk. We had Shannon and Trisha up here a few months back. We were celebrating and praising God as, as they were adopting their two youngest children into their family who they'd fostered for years We've been praying for them, and we're celebrating with Shannon and Tricia. And, and Shannon sent me an email this past week. She, she's, uh, actually, it was a proposal uh, that I, I laid before the elders and was approved. You'll hear much more about this later. A proposal to host here at FCC an educational night for foster care and adoption. What's Shannon doing? She's saying, hey, God's had me on a journey. It's been a heartbreaking journey at times. But I have learned, we, her family, we've learned a thing or two about how to share the the love of Christ through this thing called foster care and adoption. And so, maybe we we ought to talk about this. Since, you know, James says true religion is to care for widows and orphans, and there's a big need for that right here in Washington. So we don't have all the details worked out yet, but I think this is a fantastic example of what we're talking about. She doesn't need to move to China, although if God's calling her, she better. But she's asking the question, how can I use my passions, my experience, my training to move the kingdom of God forward like a shining light here in Washington? And I'm excited about this educational night. More info to come. Give you another example. Every time we have food here at this church. And, and, and Julie Libertor is coordinating our, doing a fantastic job coordinating our, our meal ministry now and, and all of its various forms. But I, I'm thinking in particular of one of the volunteers uh, associated with food here, Pat Caruso. Every time 
I'm like walking through a line with food. I'm met by Pat's smiling face, and she's just there serving me, pushing more food than I should have onto my plate. It's her fault. You know, oftentimes I'm here on a Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday afternoon, and Pat will bring cookies. She's doing it all the time. She's dropping off cookies. At first, I didn't realize what was going on. She drops off cookies nearly every week for our youth ministry. She's not a youth leader. That's just not where the Lord has her with her, uh, with her time and her training. But she loves these kids, and you know how she cares for them? Sugar. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, this doesn't have to look like you're becoming a seminary professor. Pat Caruso brings cookies for our teenagers every week for the glory of God. You see? Betty Craig, every time we come in, I don't know if Betty's well enough to be here today or not. We can't get in this room without like her wrestling one of our babies away from us. Betty Craig holds babies to help parents out week in, week out for the glory of God. I love the example of our teenagers. Some of our teenagers are leading here at Friendship by way of example. Logan and Daniel and Rebecca serving in the tech ministry and, and in music and, and Ricky in the nursery and, and many others. I can't, I can't list all the names. As a matter of fact, I was at the daddy-daughter date night at Chick-fil-A yesterday. It was a lot of fun. And Chick-fil-A is fantastic, right? I mean, I, I, I have to tell myself constantly, no infomercials for Chick-fil-A. No infomercials for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> But I'm there at Chick-fil-A, and Daniel works there, along with many others here. Um, and he was serving my family. And I said, Daniel, when do you get off tonight? And I forget the exact, but it was sometime after 11. He was working like 4 to 11. He's a teenager. Working 4 to 11. And he gets up early, about every other Sunday, after that 4 to 11 shift to be here way earlier than he needs to be to help us serve in the tech ministry. Isn't that cool? A young man who's saying, you know how I serve God? With my time, even when it's inconvenient. That's inspiring. So what's this look like for you? Teach us to number our days aright. That we may gain a heart of understanding. Luke's genealogy and the Bible genealogies in general, I hope for us, help us to grasp just a little tighter, to wade just a little deeper into the love of God and to prioritize our lives accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus the Christ. Son, as was supposed of Joseph, miraculously conceived of Your Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Son of David, the King, Son of Abraham, the blessing for even us Gentiles here, Son of Adam, the true and greater Adam, the one who won our victory over the snake and crushed his head. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the perspective to live our lives wholly for you. Help us, Jesus. Fill us with your spirit.
so that we can walk this out this week. And now as we seek to just praise your name one more time and close in prayer, Lord, would you even now abide in the praises of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.